Well, good evening, everybody. Let me pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would indeed speak to us this evening, that we would live as your people in a renewed way. For Jesus' sake, amen. Um, I've had uh, a number of conversations with people uh, in my time in which I've, I've mentioned something about church and, and they've said something like, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Um, is anybody else familiar with that kind of line? Anybody heard that before? Um, yes, some people. And, and how I kind of react is like, I, I know there's something wrong with it, but I, I don't really know what it is, is, is how I sometimes feel. I, I kind of... I think we know church is important for Christians and yet there's something we want to affirm in what they're saying, maybe. I wonder if our kind of confusion there shows actually something about us as well. I wonder how important we really think church is for Christians. Uh, what would it take for you to disconnect from church, do you think? What kind of events keep you away from church? What, what's, what's good enough to stop you coming? Or, what, or what, would, what would lead you to cut off from relationships with people in your Christian fellowship? Um, what if you had a quarrel with somebody in this group and that was a difficult thing? Uh, how, how big would that have to be before you disconnected, do you think? It's a bit awkward that I've started talking about this, of course. It's always a bit awkward when ministers talk about kind of commitment to church. And I just want to put that out there. I'm sorry about that. Um, there's nothing I can do about it, though, because I've been led to, to talk about church by a striking fact in the text that is before us this evening from Ephesians. Um, and the striking fact is this. In chapter 4, what Paul does is he begins the second half of Ephesians. It's, and in the second half of Ephesians, he's really talking about what it means to live the Christian life. Chapters 1 to 3, as we've seen over the past uh, number of weeks, are really a, 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 an amazing picture of God's grace, uh, a grand vision of what God has done in Christ. And then in chapter 4, he's, he kind of goes, therefore, how are you going to live? Did you see it in chapter 4, verse 1? It'd be great to have the text open. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He kind of launches into what does it mean to live as a Christian. And the striking fact is this. The first thing he talks about is church. The first thing he talks about is how you in, engage in Christian fellowship. The word church is not actually used in our verses but it's very clear that's what he's talking about. He talks about the body of Christ. He talks about relationships with one another. And so we have to think this evening about church. Now, as we go through the text, uh, I'm going to pause a couple of times for questions. So if you have questions on the way through, uh, Camilla is going to have a handheld microphone. So just be ready and we can take a little bit of time. We probably won't be able to get into everything. But we'll take a little bit of time to think about some of these things in this passage. But before we launch into the stuff about church, I just want to pause over chapter 4, verse 1. Because this, it's quite significant the way Paul puts things there. 
He says, I, what he says is, I want, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That's how he kicks off. Now, to see what's important, just imagine he hadn't said that. Imagine he'd said, as an apostle of the Lord, I command you to do these things. It, it would have felt very different, wouldn't it? It, it would have felt very different. And that, that helps us see what's going on here. You see, the way, Paul, the way Paul starts this bit helps us understand a lot about what the Christian life is like, the character of the Christian life. Notice two things. First, he's, what he says is, I urge you. Urge, it, it means implore, encourage. And it's the kind of word you use when you don't just want blind obedience. You don't just want somebody to go, oh, he's told me, I'm just going to do it. You want people to think about it and to get on board. Paul doesn't just want kind of people to do the right thing. He wants us to, and God wants us to, it to grab our hearts and our minds so that we want to choose it, so that we get it, so that it makes sense. And what he's urging is that we live a life worthy of our calling. Now, that word live a life there is, um, the, the Greek word is just walk. I don't normally like to talk about the Greek, but the reason I'm doing this is because the word walk happens a few times in Ephesians, and it's, signif- and it's kind of a significant idea. It refers to the, way of, the whole way of life you've been called to in Christ. So if you flip back and look at chapter 2, verse 10, again, our translation doesn't have it, but the word walk... It, Paul says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works so that we would walk in them. The word walk is used there, and we'll see it come up uh, in a couple of weeks' time when we keep looking at this as well. And so the idea is that we walk in a way that always reminds me of Johnny Walker. You know, what's your walk? Well, this is our walk, and it's a walk that is worthy of the calling. Now, what's the calling? Well, the word calling has been used before. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, um, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I think the calling is really a reference to the fact that you've, God has called you to be included in this whole wealth of grace. God has called us to be caught up in what he has done in Jesus to march with him into the glorious future he has brought us to. You see, to be a Christian is to have received a call, a call to participate in God's future. Uh, we, we think about calling in terms of vocation. Maybe you've been called to be a fashion designer or a garbage collector. or This is a, a calling which underlies every other call. It's a call to be with God, to, to share in what he is doing in the world in Christ. And the Christian life is about living in a way that is worthy of that calling. We need to keep this in mind for the rest of Ephesians. It's the heading that stands over everything we're going to follow. And it helps us because it shows us that what we're going to hear is not a burden. It's not something that's just a dreary addition to our faith. It's exactly what makes sense given the, the wealth of grace that God has showered upon us. Okay, with me so far? 
Okay, well, what does it mean then to live a life worthy of our calling? And what does it mean in relation to church? Well, that's what the rest of the passage is about. And the answer, essentially, I think, is this. Paul says that walking worthily of our calling means a deep and practical commitment to Christian fellowship that arises from faith. You see, what Paul is doing here is not just saying, do this, do this, do this. He's, he's asking us to believe things about the church. First and foremost, this passage is not about a bunch of things to do. It's about a call to see the church in a particular way. And that is what Paul is, and, and what God is saying to us this evening, is what it means to live worthy of our calling. Uh, let me show you what I mean as we go through. He does begin with a statement of, this is what you should do. Verses 2 and 3, have a look at it there. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He talks first about peacemaking, cultivating the virtues in yourself that lead to harmony in relationships that are going to ease tensions and stop things turning into a falling out. And he talks about keeping the unity of the Spirit. But he immediately goes on to say why we should do this. Look at verses 4 to 6. He gives a profound theological explanation. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, the reason peacemaking makes sense, the reason keeping the unity makes sense, is because unity is already there. There is one body, because there is one Lord, its head. And so the right thing to do is to, to, to preserve that unity. It's the only thing that makes sense. Now, when you talk about unity in the church, the, the thing that very often comes into people's minds is the reality of divisions. Now, some of you are probably thinking that. What about all the denominations? What about the divisions in the church? And I think that's a fair enough point, actually. Uh, two things to say about this, I think. The first is the, the existence of divisions in church organizations, it may well be a failure of some sort. But we need to be clear about the kind of failure it is. What it isn't is a failure t for there to be one church. Right? It's, it's, it, what divisions in the church doesn't mean is that there, Paul's wrong here. There is not, in fact, one church. Because there is one body. The body is one. So the kind of failure it is, is a failure of expression, a failure of witness. It's a failure to express in our relationships the, the spiritual unity that does in fact exist among God's people. Uh, that's the first thing I think we need to say. The, the second thing to say, though, is I think we should stop ourselves from immediately going into the kind of universal church issue, uh, from immediately thinking about, you know, the split between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. And, and the reason for this is Paul clearly is talking about the universal church in one sense. He's talking about the body of Christ. But 
where he wants it to have an effect is on the ground in actual congregations like our own. That's where the rubber is supposed to hit the road with this. That's where the issue of unity is, is meant to kind of be, be seen, come out. Uh, that's where the peacemaking is primarily meant to go on. And I think we need to not just kind of float off into the ether of a church we're never going to be a part of. We need to think about our church. Divisions in congregations are not good. They, they are they're ugly in a profound way. And they're not just ugly because they usually involve unpleasantness of some kind. They do usually involve people not being nice to each other. But they're ugly at a deeper level because what they are is a, is, is a failure to express the truth about the body of Christ. That it is one. And we should never be comfortable with that. And I, I pray to God that, that we, we do not become a church which is comfortable with that. I don't think we are. And I, I pray that we don't go there. Okay, that's division. But we shouldn't let, this is the next point, we shouldn't let our anxiety about division, division's not good, we shouldn't let our anxiety about division, though, turn into a hatred of difference. Complicated point, but look where Paul goes in verse 7. He says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, the idea here is that Christ gives a variety of gifts. And what it suggests is that actually we get different gifts. And it means that the church's unity is, is constituted by difference, by us being different. You see, we sometimes think about unity and diversity as if they're just intention. They're two different things that you can kind of, you just got to try to hold together like the two like poles of magnets. Have I got the science of that right? Is there somebody here? Is that right? They're the ones that push away. Thank you. Sorry. Bad. You know what I mean? We've got to hold them together as if they're intention. But that's, that's not how it is. The truth is that unity and diversity are two sides of the same coin. Diversity is the substance of unity. Unity happens through diversity. Because the unity of the church is not a unity of sameness, as if we're all kind of like Oompa Loompas. Do you know what Oompa Loompas are from Willy Wonka? They're all they're terrifying. They're very scary little men, but they're all the same, you know? And that's, that's not the kind of unity that the church has. It's a unity of difference, of diversity. In verses 8 to 10, which are a bit weird, but where Paul goes is to just elaborate on this point. Um, we need to understand verses 8 to 10. Have a look at them there. Paul says, this is why it says, and he's here quoting Psalm 68, which was our Old Testament reading, but for the eagle-eyed among you, he's actually quoting it a bit differently, and scholars debate what the explanation for that is, and that's a question, if you want, you can ask me, but I won't have a good answer to it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Paul goes on and says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Um, 
Paul, what Paul's doing here is simply he's got this verse in the psalm that talks about ascending and giving gifts, right? And he wants to say that's about Jesus. Because in the psalm, in its original context, it looks like it's just about Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Paul's saying actually that is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who ascends and give gift, gives gifts. And the way he gets there is by saying, because the idea of ascension implies the idea of descending. And so the one who descended, the one who became incarnate, who became a human being, he's the one who ascended and gave gifts. Okay, It's not actually more complicated than that. He's trying to show that that psalm is about Jesus. And Jesus' ascension means he's given gifts. Uh, Just by the way, I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through Ephesians how important the ascension is. He keeps coming back to the significance of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and has been seated at God's right hand. That is incredibly important. It's the cause for our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, because we've been called, raised up with him to God's beautiful future. And Paul's point here, though, is that from his place at the right hand of God, Jesus has given gifts, different gifts. And out of those differences arises a beautiful unity. And we just need to get that. We're not supposed to be the same. We're supposed to be together. That's a powerful thought. It's a beautiful thought. It is good that we don't all have the same ideas about stuff, that we're not all doing the same work, that we don't all look the same, that we're not all from the same background. That's the kind of unity God wants for his church. Okay, now I'm going to pause here for give you a chance to ask any questions about this stuff. We're kind of halfway through our passage. Um, there is a microphone, but you can also shout out if you'd like. Does anybody have a question about what we've been looking at? It doesn't matter if there aren't any, by the way. I'll take that as massive clarity. Grammar, fantastic. Oh, Drew's microphone. <laughs> Hello? Yes, rock and roll. Um, with so uh, worthy to the calling, it could be also to each person. You know, someone could be someone that's, you know, talking on the street corner to some person. You know, the calling can be lots of things. It Not can... only division as is in a church, as a group, as an assembly of people, but also to each person's purpose. That's God's will, not our will. Thank you. I suspect that's quite a helpful clarification. Um, The idea of calling in the Bible is bigger than this idea. And I don't want to say no to other ideas of calling. But I think what Paul's talking about here is God's call to participate in uh, the the, the future he has created through Jesus. Uh, The calling to the hope we have received in Christ, uh, to share with him in basically the healing of the world that he's affected. So you're, you're right, in the Bible has other ideas about calling, and, and I don't want to deny them, but I think that's what he's talking about here. Thank you. Other questions? There's one up the back and one down the front. Uh, hi, Andrew. Um, question is just, we spoke about... I guess 
why we should do this and you spoke about division but how do we actually how do we actually respond to that division or how do we deal with it when it does occur division is that what you were saying division yes that's a really good question um and because this sermon has a bunch of other things in it uh all i'm able to talk about is really our attitude uh our desire to avoid it uh the fact of the matter is we are sinners uh, and we do fail at this level to express the unity we have in christ i just don't want us to be happy with that um and i want us to work on it the bible has a number of things to say about uh division and peacemaking but i think if you can sum it up, I think the attitude we should have is to stay in relationship and to be truthful, but seeking reconciliation, um, if, if that makes sense. So uh, problems arise when people just disconnect, when they choose to just stop bothering to stay in relationship. But problems also arise when people stop bothering to stay in relationship and say what they think. Uh, I hope we can be a church where we have the guts to talk to each other uh, and to speak uh, and to try and bring healing if, if that comes up. Um, probably this is, that's just something we need to keep working on. Um, but I think at least the starting point is verses 2 and 3. Uh, pursuing those virtues in all our relating with, with each other, humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another. You see how Paul has such a realistic view about church life? Bearing with one another. You know, just sticking it out sometimes. That's how this happens in that normal, gnarly, boring stuff of, of patience. Okay, I think we've got time for one more and then I'll move on. Um, my question is, if there is a church that is has is basically homogenous is that church then therefore missing the point of this passage no because i don't i don't believe homogenous churches exist right so um we might there might be a church which is homo, sorry homogenous is like you know milk it's all the same okay unless it's the old milk which isn't um there might be churches where everybody comes from the same kind of age and stage but they're not going to be the same. They're going to have different personalities. It's just true of any human group of people. And so the first thing to say is homogeneity never really exists. Uh, there are always differences. Um, but I think we can say something more than that, that the desire to be homogenous, you've got to be careful with that, I think, because God's desire is not to create a unity that comes from us all basically being the same. Um, and that's what, I'm, I'm glad we're not, if I can put it that way. Okay, let me move on. There's another chance later on to ask some questions. Well, having described the nature of the church's unity in diversity, uh, Paul moves on to talk about the goal and the growth of the church. And he does this, firstly, by focusing on a particular set of gifts. Did you see that in verse 11? It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now, that's a list which doesn't include everybody. 
And in Paul's other letters, he has lots of other gifts he mentions. So there's no sense that this is an exhaustive list of gifts, right? Why does he pick on these ones? Well, I think the reason is what he's talking about here is not so much gifts, but the importance of the word of God in the life of the church. See, these are all gifts that have to do with the proclamation of the word of God. And Paul says these gifts are crucial because of what they do. Look at verse 12. In order to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You see, the word of God is crucial for the growth of the church. It is what prepares or equips God's people for works of service or ministry. Now, this is another awkward moment, of course, because uh, I'm now a professional Bible teacher. Um, and, but we do need to just notice here, we'd be, we'd be crazy not to notice the way this passage points us to the significance of the life of the Word of God for the life of the church. It really matters that churches hear and know and live by the Word of God. Now, that says nothing really about the people who are doing it. And as, we're going to, as we'll see, it also means we should all be involved in that. But we can often be fooled by this. We can often think that what really matters for church is our energy or strategic leadership or um, really great supper. I mean, all of those things are good and important, especially supper. But they're not, they're not the heart. Churches live and die by the word of God. It is what gives growth. But that's the other thing we need to mention. The aim is not for us to just be a Bible teaching church. The aim is for the teaching of the Bible to do something. You see that? To prepare God's people for works of service. The, the aim is not for us to just sit here and enjoy really good Bible teaching, if we can get there, and just to kind of be happy about that. The aim is for the, the, the Scripture to be heard and to lead to action, to do things in our life. And that's because the point is not for the church to just be, to exist. The point is for the church to grow. It has a goal it's heading towards. Paul describes that goal twice in verses kind of positively and negatively in the verses 13 and 14. Positively, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The image there is of the church growing up to be like a mature adult. Uh, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ is, I think, a picture of the, a full-grown person growing into Christ. Um, my daughter, Frances, is eight months old, and it's very tempting for me to kind of wish she would just never change. She's just perfect. Um, but I don't really wish that. Not really. She, need, she has a goal. She needs to grow. She has somewhere to go. If, she needs to learn to poo and eat for herself. This is not where she is meant to stay. And the same is tr true of churches. We're not meant to just stay like we are. We're meant to go somewhere. Now, one aspect of where, we, where we're meant to go is to become more solid and secure in our grasp on the gospel. 
That's why Paul says in verse 14, then we will no longer be infants, there's that image again, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their, deceit, in their deceitful scheming. It's a picture of being not shaken around anymore by false ideas. Uh, maturity is about being solid in our grasp on the truth. Uh, and that's, that's another reason the life of the Word of God is so important, not just teaching, but in, in all of our lives that we speak it to one another so that we're secure in that foundation. Okay, now we're getting on, but I do want to pause here again because I've flown through a few things. Are there other questions people want to ask about this? Because I've covered a bit of ground. Anything here people are not clear on or want to follow up? Okay, that's great. Although it would have been great if there was a question as well. I have no problem either way. In the last two verses of our passage, I think we see all these ideas come together. Instead, says Paul, speaking the truth in love, that, by the way, is where we see, I think, the life of the Word of God working in all of our lives. This is one of the acts of service the word of God prepares people for is to speak to one another, the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. That's an image of, you know, when a little person grows, they grow into where their head used to be, right? But thankfully their head goes up as well. So it doesn't, that stays in the right proportion. That's the image. We grow up into him who is a head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Do you get the picture of unity and diversity, the whole body, every different little bit? Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is an image of the church as a unity made up of diverse parts growing together as one, nurtured on the truth of God's word towards perfection in Christ. Is that the way we think about church? Is that the way you think about church? I think very often our view of church is just shrunken from that. Now, sometimes there are good reasons for that. Uh, The church I used to go to in Ashfield, the parish council there spent two years debating how to remove the pigeons from the tower. It just kind of... Not the grand vision we see here. You know, it's, it's kind of Vicar of Dibley stuff. But, I mean, the real reason we, we let our, our, our view of church be shrunken, of course, is that some of these things are hard to see. In fact, it's all hard to see on the surface. The unity of the church is not obvious. The, the value of every person in church the importance of their their role. That's not obvious either. It is so easy to kind of feel like some some people, maybe yourself, you don't really have that significant a role to play. Isn't that easy to feel like? And the significance of the Word of God in the life of the church, that's not obvious either, is it? I mean, honestly, who really remembers sermons? It's not like this is news to me. I mean, they're just, they, they, 
They're there and they're gone. And you've, what was that about? You know, two days later. Does it really matter if I don't go to Bible study, if we don't get read the passage? It's very easy to not believe that. But we mustn't let our view of church be shrunken in this way. We mustn't because it's not worthy of the calling we have received. It is not worthy of the calling we have received for us to treat church as if it's not really that important. To treat peacemaking as if it's, ah, maybe. To treat the the teaching of the scriptures and, and truthful speech in our own lives as if it's kind of, yeah, it's pretty important. It's not worthy of our calling. What is worthy of our calling is for us to be at church because we believe. To see church through the eyes of faith. To know that the church is one. And so want to pursue reconciliation in all of our relationships. And to never just be happy to shrug our shoulders when things start to fall apart. What is worthy of our calling is for us to know that the church grows as it hears the word of God. And so to have an incredibly high regard for the presence of, of the scripture within our life. I think we're not bad at this, actually. And I would love it if at CIG, when the Bible is read in church, you, could, you can hear a pin drop. And everybody's paying attention. Not because that's the only place in which the truth is spoken, but because it says symbolically, we know this is our life. And what's worthy of our calling is for us to know and remember that the church's goal and growth requires every part doing its work in love. Not thinking that other people or you don't really matter. Let me say a couple of things about that. Do you know that you matter here? I think this is a tricky one for us. It's tricky partly because sometimes we have a view of church where church is just this hour and a half on a Sunday. And so to have a role, you have to do something like the PowerPoint or the sound or the preaching or be in the band. And we just don't have enough jobs. That's the problem. with Church is not just an hour and a half. We're a body, a community, and we need to discover our part to play within that context. If you don't know what you're... If you really feel like you, you would like to participate, but you don't know how, I would just love it if you could have a conversation with me. If you could, if you could talk to me about it, and we'll work on it together. I don't really have all the answers, but I know it's important. But also, let me say this, the most important role we all have to play is to love. As each part does its work in love, says Paul. And we all all will love in different ways. We all will love with different capacities, different people at different times. And out of that can grow a beautiful unity. Brothers and sisters, we need your love. That's, that's, that's what it looks like to live worthily of our calling.
just practically, finally, a couple of things. The first thing to say is, this is not the biggest thing, but I want to say it anyway. If one thing this has got to mean is that coming to church on a Sunday, Sunday is not the be-all and end-all, but coming to church on a Sunday has got to be a high priority for us. Because if it really matters that every part does its work, and so it really matters that each of us be nurtured on the Word of God, then we've just got to be a part of it. Please make it a priority. See, I guess it is possible to be a Christian and to not care about making peace with others. I guess it is possible to be a Christian and to not have a high regard for Scripture, to be a Christian and to not really feel like your contribution is important. I guess it's even possible to be a Christian and not really care about church. But it's not worthy of being a Christian. It's not worthy of the calling that that name implies. My dear brothers and sisters, let me urge you to live lives worthy of your calling. To engage with church in a way that is worthy of your calling. In love, peaceableness, attentiveness, commitment, participation. Let, Let me urge you to engage in this church in this way. It won't be easy, but anything less is simply not worthy of those who have been called to share the wealth of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead and sits at his right hand. Praise God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is one body because there is one Lord, its head. And we thank you that there is one spirit in our midst granting us the knowledge of you, the one God. Father, we thank you that all of us have a part to play and that you have showered grace upon each of us in different ways. And we thank you that you speak to us and to to nurture us and grow us. And Lord, we just ask that we would be the people who live lives worthily of this calling so that you would indeed do this work in us so that we would grow up into Christ our head to the full stature of what you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.